pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, Bob. So just one or two business things before I start. Uh, because what was required you know, on the meetings during the financially speaking, uh, at the moment the bank totals are 10000 You're listening to the beginning of a meeting of the Levittown Historical Society. It's from the middle of March this year. The Levittown Historical Society has a little museum in the lower part of a school off Abbey Lane in Levittown. The museum is in a narrow room, not much longer than home to first on a baseball field. The room is full of Levittown artifacts and memorabilia. One photograph shows a line of men waiting to buy Levin and Sons house in 1949. Another photograph shows the area before all the houses were built. There's a little clump of trees in a field that gave the area the early name Island Trees. It looks empty then, a little grove. At the front of the room, next to an American flag, the president of the Historical Society is giving a lecture on Levittown history. Paul Manton is a middle-aged man with a long beard and a gray vest. He was just a kid when he moved into Levittown, which he talked about during his lecture. I'm, I'm originally from Brooklyn, and there were eight of us in the family. So my father comes home one day. I'm, I'm just shy of my seventh birthday. Dad comes home with his paycheck. It's probably about $40. It's in smaller bills. So he's standing there by the dresser counting, and I'm standing there, you know, yay high at the time, right? And I'm looking at this stack of money. And I'm thinking to myself, he must need to be one of those people they call millionaires. <laughs> Look at all that money, that stack of money, of course. Those are what millionaires have. Those are the ones that have the money. So a couple of weeks later, we moved to Levittown. We get out of the, we get out of the truck, first time I was ever in a truck, we get out of the truck. Dad points to the house. It's a Cape Cod that nothing's been added to yet. Even the upstairs isn't done yet, so he was in a brush job to fix it, get it you know, so that it would accommodate us. He points to this unfinished little Cape Cod. He says, you see that? That's our house. We're going to live here. You, you're going to live here with your brothers and sisters and with your mother and I. And you see this yard, the backyard? You can play in this with your brothers and sisters or with the other children of the neighborhood. This is ours. I bought this with my money. And I look at it, and I see this vast estate and this huge mansion. Then it made sense. Well, of course. Of course, only a millionaire could possibly afford something like that. It confirmed it. He's, he's very rich. He's a millionaire. He wasn't, but uh, rich in other ways. The poignancy of this is that the early Levitt houses were modest, but this was a chance for working people who lived in apartments to afford their own place out of the city. A little bit of property, the American dream. This is part of the legend of Levittown. Manton's lecture that March night was on Levittown myths and misconceptions. So, Levittown myths and misconceptions. <laughs> and I have squeezed them down to 10. I've taken all 10,000 of them, <laughs> jumped on them, kicked them, stomped them down, and forced them into a box of 10 of them. So these are going to be the 10 most prevalent ones that over the years have uh, cropped up their ugly head. But I want to talk about the One of the myths is that Levittown was the birthplace of the suburbs. Manton says that's not exactly right because there were other commuter suburbs before Levittown. One was Brooklyn Heights, for example, which developed with the ferry to take you to Manhattan. But a few things made Levittown different. One is that Levitt the Builder was able to build homes extremely fast with assembly line techniques. A second thing that made Levittown different was that the houses were affordable to a new class of people. It used to be that you could only escape the city if you were rich enough to own a villa. But with Levittown and places like it, 
no longer. Pair this sudden opening of the suburbs with all the people returning from World War II and needing homes. This was Newsday's point in the 40s and 50s, the big crusade that Newsday went on that we covered in episode one. When the soldiers came back from World War II, a number of things were happening. Number one, uh, there was a housing shortage, so to speak. Uh, people would come back, they would want to get married, want to have families, uh, etc. This is Elaine Gross, president of Erase Racism, a Long Island group devoted to addressing structural discrimination in the region. There were some issues with housing quality uh, in the city, and the federal government actually had in advance of the return, you know, they were already uh, thinking about housing and making some changes with housing in terms of the federally guaranteed mortgages, setting up that whole system. Basically, people needed housing. The federal government was finally going to help them get it, and Levittown was that shining opportunity. So lots of people who moved to Levittown have stories like Paul Manton's. I think it was just the, the freedom, the, um, the educational uh, opportunities, the, uh, the openness of the, the planes, you know, it was new, everything was brand new, those shopping centers were just beginning to go up, it was uh, just a fresh, brand new environment, yeah. and I think that's what enticed them. This is Louise Cassano, who also came to Levittown as a child and stayed. We're talking about her parents' arrival. When she was little, she'd been living in Brooklyn with her family, just like Manton. Levittown was a whole new world. When you moved in, what was, I mean, did you have a lot more space in this house, or what, what yeah. was the living situation yeah. like? Uh, we had a lot more space, uh, a lawn and, and property that, you know, we of course didn't have when we were in an apartment in Brooklyn. Um, so it was really nice. It was very, very exciting for me because we were able to actually play in the street, uh, to ride our bicycles in the street. Um, we had, you know, every night the kids would come out and we would play different games, you know, softball and, and stickball and um, other, other running games and what have you, hide and seek. There was a tremendous feeling of, of freedom for the children in that. Here's another newcomer. Living with my mother, heard it was pregnant, and we were all living in a two-bedroom apartment. Uncle Bernie was there at the time. Yeah. Heard his brother was living there. He slept in the living room. Uh, and we had two bedrooms for my mother, Herda, and me, and we were having another child. So I needed more space, and at that time, Levittown was going up. This is Morty Weiss speaking in a video made by his family. He died in 2009. He was originally from the Bronx, and he was one of those veterans who needed housing. So he camps out on the line in Nassau County to try for a Levittown house. Overnight, he got some news. Saturday night, I think I packed a lunch of some kind and a blanket. This was what month uh, now? March. March. It was winter time. It was cold. Matter of fact, it was even snowing a little. I got out to Levittown where the model house was. 
There was already a crowd of people there, and they had all brought their blankets. They were building fires. And about midnight, I got a call, and someone from the model house said, uh, uh, Mortimer Weiss, yes, right here. Uh, there's a call for you. I got on the phone. It was my mother. Congratulations. You have two girls. But I already had one. I assumed there was another girl. She says, no, you've got twin girls. You've got now three girls. And what did you do? Hmm? You yelled out. Well, I don't recall exactly what I did. You but told me you yelled out, yippee! Well, maybe I made that one up. But <laughs> at any rate, there was a little bit of excitement out there when the, the news was announced that while waiting for a house, twins had been born. Clearly, Weiss and his wife, Herta, were going to need more space. The next morning, Weiss finds out that he's one of the first 300 in line, so he's told he can come back and do the paperwork when the office opens. He's thrilled. Here's what happens when he comes back. When I got down to the uh, model house, there was quite a bit of a ruckus going on. It seems that of the first 300 people online who had gotten numbers, a dozen or so were Afro-Americans. There were representatives of the NAACP there. The American Labor Party was there in order to fight for the rights of these dozen or so Afro-Americans to get a house. Weiss says this is how he learned about the racially discriminatory covenants in Levittown. Weiss's family thinks that the year he was looking for the house was 1949, by which point technically the clauses would have been ruled unenforceable by the Supreme Court. That spring, a Newsday article notes that Levitt has belatedly agreed to drop the racial clause from leases. Regardless, we know for sure that African Americans were still discouraged from purchasing homes in Levittown. As late as June 1958, when Levitt was celebrating the opening of a Levittown in New Jersey, he told a reporter that the new community would be racially segregated, just like his last ones. On that spring day back in Levittown, New York, Morty Weiss said that pro-integration protesters asked him whether he would refuse to sign the lease if the racial clause remained, and Weiss agreed. He also saw Levitt outside the office that day. Bill Levitt was there, and as he drove away in his chauffeur-driven car, I was coming down the road, and I, I was met by a member of the ALP, and uh, I waved to the car, the car stopped, and I said to Mr. Levitt, I understand you're not selling a home to Afro-Americans, we just fought a war for democracy. And he was very upset. He had down there, people were yelling at him. And he said, look, he said, I'm Jewish. When I go to Florida, there are hotels I can't stay. Levitt said he was just following normal policy. Unlike Levitt, Weiss and his wife made a choice to go against the tide. something to tell you, don't get excited, but we cannot have that house, we cannot move into that house. I said, what? Hysterically? <laughs> I said, you have three young children, and you know we can't live with your mothers anymore, we have no room there, and we want to live on Long Island in the country, and so forth. 
I says, why did you do this? I said, you know, and he told me that he hadn't signed. I said, we can fight this issue after we move in. Why did you do that? And I was very upset. And, but actually we did the right thing, when you think about it. Because later they did open up these houses to black veterans, African-American veterans, but it took a while. They found another place to live. Weiss did go back to Levittown, but it was to protest. He remembers one black family that found a way to move in. Pro-integration groups wanted to protect that family, so supporters would spend the night in the family's unfinished attic in case any trouble happened. Only a handful of black families managed to get into Levittown, Long Island in those years by renting from an owner who didn't mind or otherwise avoiding contact with Levitt. One of these early families was the Cotters, whose daughter was Phyllis Atchison, the 77-year-old we talked to in episode one. Phyllis Cotter's dad, William, was an auto mechanic involved with advocacy groups like the NAACP and the American Labor Party. At first, the family was living in Great Neck, Long Island, and Phyllis remembers her father wanting a bigger place. He believed people should be allowed to live wherever they want. So the Cotters moved to Levittown somewhere around 1950. It was nice, as advertised. Nobody called us names, at least not me, or not to my face. Uh, you know, so it was just, it wasn't any different than you growing up wherever you grew up and new friends with your neighbors. Atchison remembers it as a pretty good childhood, not getting bothered too much. She thinks that might have been because her family was what she called Heinz 57, meaning her background had a little bit of everything. White, Native American, black, to an observer, they might look Hispanic. Even still, people knew they were there. There. Let me put it that way. How do you um, mean? What do you mean? Because if relatives came, they, um, uh, you know, we lived right off Division Avenue, which was like a main street going down to the stores, as we called it. Um, so when they would come, um, the people, and they didn't know where they were going, oh, you're looking for the Cotters, because they were, you know, relatives were darker. And so they say, oh, they live around on Butternut. Oh, that's amazing. So, <laughs> so it was very clear. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's, like I said, they knew we were there where we lived. At first, the Cotters were just subletting. The tensions came into the open in 1953, when Cotter got involved in a court case when he tried to buy or rent the home outright and the real estate company that owned the Levitt House refused and tried to evict him. Cotter received support from neighbors and people like Weiss. The family got help from different advocacy and political groups, some of which were on the left or even far left side of things, which led to Newsday's editorial board branding them as communists. But Cotter couldn't prevent the eviction. At that time, Atchison wasn't much older than 10. Just before Christmas, on what was reported to be a cold, sleety day, it happened. The marshals carried the furniture out to the curb. There were mixed opinions from the neighbors. One article in Newsday quotes a neighbor saying, quote, I think they're one of the nicest families around here. It's a shame they had all the trouble. That's more support than a first black family received in the Pennsylvania Levittown, where white residents actually rioted. Even still, the Cotters faced a lot of quotes like this. The Cotters will lower the value of all of our homes when they move in. Did it either frustrate you or your parents that, you know, that they couldn't live there at first, you know, that, that people were trying to evict them? 
I'm sure it did because my father would not have fought it if it didn't frustrate him. Mm-hmm. You know, how dare, to me, uh, now I don't know if this is how he thought, but it's, you know, how come I can't live here just like everybody else? You know, I want something better for my family. And, you know, why should the opportunity only be offered to white folks? A few other families had similar experiences. My father was a was in the Army Air Corps. He he was one of the original Tuskegee Airmen, um, flew the PCP-1 Mustangs during World War II. And after uh, he was taken prisoner of war, he was shot down on his 25th mission, taken prisoner of war. And then, uh, fortunately for, for him, liberated rather quickly. Um, the war ended. He came back. He was a... Uh, uh, flight instructor for a while, and then he went to Meharry Medical School and became a surgeon and uh, went to work in Long Island because he was from Freeport. And um, we were living in Levittown when I was born. This is Bill Gaines talking about his late father, Dr. Thurston Gaines Jr. And my dad told me a number of times um, before he passed that. Uh, the way he got the house in Levittown, because there were no blacks allowed to live in Levittown. That was, that was, uh, they didn't want blacks living in Levittown. Right. And uh, that his, that the gentleman who owned the house that my father purchased for some insanely low, like 3500 bucks or something like that. Um, right. He sold the house to my father to spite his neighbor he didn't like. <laughs> Gaines the son went on to have a career in the military and as a police officer and TV anchor. Even years later, he remembers what it was like to be one of essentially the only African-American children in his neighborhood. I do remember the, the prevalence of, um, of racism even at that early age. I was pre-kindergarten when we left uh, Levittown, but I remember going to uh, uh, a birthday party pretty much across the street or just down the road from where we lived. But in, in this, that sub, um, you know, back then all the kids would dress up in their like Sunday best for a birthday party. And, and uh, this family uh, had a slide, I guess, in their backyard and I went down the slide, and some kids threw hot water on me, and uh, and started calling me a nigger. You know, I remember I went home crying. Gaines's family left Levittown before too long. His father was a doctor, and they were able to afford other nice housing. The Cotters, more stubbornly, returned to Levittown after being evicted, thanks to the kindness of friends. Eventually, they found another place of their own in Levittown, and they stayed for years. But they were among the only non-white residents. One reason for this was that black families might have felt unwelcome. Levittown literally wasn't built for them. They were blocked by the federal government, with the FHA essentially requiring builders to create racially separate communities. They were also blocked by racially restrictive covenants and the discrimination of real estate agents. This structural racism had a pocketbook effect. Some of this is covered in Richard Rothstein's book, The Color of Law. 
Rothstein argues that as of his writing in 2017, Levitt houses without major remodeling went for over $350,000. Back in the post-war era, they were purchased for around $75,000 in today's money. That means that families who are allowed to live in Levittown gained over $200,000 in wealth. That wealth was denied to most black families. And that was just one impact. And then what has been sort of the effect of this discrimination and segregation on Long Island, like in the present? Like what is it, what does it actually meant to white and black communities? Well, it certainly has meant that there, you know, we have almost three million people here who for the most part don't really have, um, you know, they, they don't live together and their children don't go to school together. And that, the ignorance that comes from that is not healthy for anyone. So there, you know, there, that means you have, it's much easier for myths to be rampant. It's much easier for, you know, misinformation to spread uh, it's much easier for people to be suspicious of each other, to uh, not trust people that are different from them. I mean, there's a whole culture that uh, results from people being separated from each other and not having an opportunity to learn you know, about each other and from each other. So it is, um, it's not good, <laughs> it's and not good. That's Elaine Gross again from Erase Racism. She points out that separation in housing has helped lead to segregated school districts, which are often unequally funded, leading to more separation and more unequal outcomes. A 1990 Newsday series called A World Apart found that nearly 85% of black residents lived in only 15% of the census tracts in 1980. A 2012 Long Island Index study found that the rate of school segregation on Long Island was double the national average. Discrimination from decades ago laid the groundwork, and then blockbusting and real estate agent steering cemented the problem. Potential disparate treatment for house seekers hasn't gone away, as documented in Newsday's new investigation. That investigation showed apparently different treatment of minorities looking to buy a home on Long Island. Levittown wasn't the only place with this legacy of discrimination, but it was prominent and influential something that was clear even decades ago. A Newsday editorial as early as 1948 called Levitt a precedent setter. Here's how Long Island Museum curator Joshua Ruff puts it. The, um, the fact that, that it helped to, um, to, to legitimize segregation in other suburbs across the area, across the region, um, because you have your most successful operation, the one that, that gets the most attention, most coverage, and is the most copied, uh, it is, is, is clear that, that it can be done. And um, I think that the tagline of, of William Levitt about this issue, that we can have a race problem and we can have a housing problem, we can't so solve both of them at the same time, was something that a lot of other builders agreed with. And so it set up a situation by which there were a small number of builders, of other builders, like the Romano brothers um, outside of, of Huntington, uh, who ended up you know, working towards, uh, towards an alternative vision, but 
on a much smaller scale. And so interracial housing ended up becoming uh, pocketed in certain communities across the island. And eventually other issues, redlining, uh, of course, with being, being a significant part of that, but uh, racial steering, um, uh, the way in which real estate operated in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and, and sort of um, communities churning over from white to black, which ha is what happened in Roosevelt. Uh, I think that the Levittown moment was really a precedent for a lot of that segregation that would, would come to be um, endemic. I asked Luis Cassano whether she remembered people being aware of those racial clauses back at the beginning of Levittown, when her family was just moving to the neighborhood. From a, a child's point of yeah. view, obviously not. You know, we didn't understand or know anything about that. And, and a, as an adult, um, I look back at it contextually because um, it's, it's an embarrassment to this community. And one of the unfortunate part is that it keeps coming out, you know, and it's something that we'll probably never outlive. Levittown has started changing in small ways. Its Asian population is around 7%, and its Hispanic population is around 15 Visit the local library on a weekday night, and you might see a little bit of that. Cassano says people are more open and welcoming now. Many were before, but now you don't have neighbors saying people who look like the Cotters should leave. Cassano would know. She's involved with Levittown community groups like the Levittown Community Council, the Chamber of Commerce, and the Lions Club. I definitely see a change in the community now. We are, there are much more uh, ethnic changes here than, than ever before. Um, so hopefully that's, that whole idea is dissipating. Um, and, you know, we, people, different ethnicities bring so much to the community. They add so much to, to the community. It's, it's, it's kind of exciting to see it happening. It's a process. Cassano mentioned that some community leaders are now people of color, like newly elected Democratic State Senator Kevin Thomas, who's Indian American. Trina Reed, who heads the library, is African American. But did some of those community groups she's a part of have people of color at the top level? Cassano couldn't immediately come up with one. That's Levittown's demographics, though of course the groups are open to all. This is a history with which Levittown residents still struggle. At that Levittown Historical Society Myths and Misconceptions lecture in March, the society president Paul Manton argued that it's unfair to paint Levittown, or even Levitt, with a broad brush. It was a different time. Obviously, Manton said, discrimination is a bad thing, but he said that Levitt had hired black workers, and the bigger problem than Levitt was the policies of the FHA. Why hadn't the protesters focused their anti-discrimination protests there? Here's why, Levitt, here's why Levitt continued some of those things, and particularly in like Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. because Levitt didn't believe that you could wave a magic wand and make racism go away just because the Supreme Court said so. He agreed with the Supreme Court, said, but just because the Supreme Court said so, he even said once in an interview, something to the effect of, um, they're trying to do what, what, what we've been struggling, meaning Jews, we've been struggling for 6,000 years to overcome. It's, you know, it, it can't be overcome at night, you know, overnight. He, he, you know, he believed that, that, that 
societies have to evolve over time and attitudes have to change over time. You simply can't, by rid of law, make something go away. It's a little like the argument Newsday's editorials were making back in 49. America will eventually beat bigotry with evolution, but we will never do it with revolution. So the American dream stayed out of reach for generations of Long Island minority families. The real promise of Levittown remained unfulfilled for them. Discrimination was present at the start, and we're still dealing with the effects today. Thanks to everyone who agreed to be interviewed for this podcast, both those we were able to include on air and those we couldn't. And a really big special thanks to Newsday's incredible library staff, particularly Carolyn Curtin, who searched through Newsday's archives on a basically daily basis to help me with this project. That was along with her usual duties, tracking down contact information and court data and clips about old political scandals and all the things that make newspapers tick. Here are some of the books consulted for the series. Obviously, Bob Keeler's indispensable Newsday, A Candid History of the Respectable Tabloid. The Huntress by Alice and Mike Laurelin is a key biography of Alicia Patterson. Also, Levittown by David Kushner, Picture Windows by Rosalind Baxendahl and Elizabeth Ewan, Expanding the American Dream by Barbara Kelly, and The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Amanda Versina is our producer, and I'm Mark Gisano.